0: Hi, I'm Scott Skelton, author of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, An After Hours Tour, and Rod Serling's Night Gallery, The Art of Darkness. And I'm here with my co-author, Jim Benson, to offer some background on the production of this episode of the series, as well as the series itself. Although the bulk of this episode was first seen on NBC on its premiere on September 22, 1971, what you're seeing now is its first rerun viewing on March 22, 1972. For that occasion, the segment that wrapped up the hour, the five-minute comic vignette Witch's Feast, was replaced with a different segment, Satisfaction Guaranteed. This blackout swap ensured that the entire hour bore the stamp of Night Gallery's most prolific and successful director, Shanos Fark, who helmed all four segments. Producer Jack Laird intended this episode to be the second season premiere. It got bumped to number two in the season run via an executive decision at the network, Rumor has it that one of the network executives' children was at the screenings and preferred the episode that took the premiere spot, the hour that began with Rod Serling's chilling adaptation, The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes. For whatever reason, this solid episode would have probably stood a better chance of coaxing more sympathetic reviews from TV critics, being that it has two of Serling's best scripts on the series, A Death in the Family, adapted from a macabre short story by Miriam Allen DeFord, and his original Twilight Zone-style shocker, Class of 99. The gallery paintings for this series were all the work of one man, Tom Wright, who worked hard to ensure the collection looked like it came from the hand of many artists, not one. In a bid to vary styles, Wright chose a more primitive technique for this offering to illustrate a story about a sympathetic undertaker. Social realist painter Ben Shahn's canvas of the infamous anarchist Sacco and Vanzetti seems a clear reference point for this painting. In Wright's own words, the concept for this painting worked off the title, The graveyard, the solemn muted colors, the tears, and the cross. Strictly visual, not scenes from the script, only images that give rise to feelings in the viewer. Wright channeled his inner grandma Moses and mimicked a more naive painter here, one who lacked a formal art education, to lend variety to the offerings. Sharp-eyed viewers will recognize the exterior facade of the funeral home from the 1969 Night Gallery pilot film. It was used as the southern manor and family graveyard of William Hendricks in the first segment, The Cemetery shot on the Universal backlot along Colonial Street. This much-used facade was originally built for the 1927 Universal silent film Uncle Tom's Cabin, later used as the sanitarium in the 1950 James Stewart comedy Harvey, and as the Hadley estate in Douglas Sirk's 1956 melodrama written on the wind. introduces us to Jared Soames, seen here stepping away from his organ recital. Nice touch, the way he adjusts his toupee before answering the door. little thespian flourishes like that help define character to the audience. Serling's script treads a delicate line between black comedy and pathos, dealing perceptively with one of the dramatist's pet obsessions, death and the afterlife. His sympathetic portrait of Jared Soames, who acquires a family made up of society's cast-offs, makes A Death in the Family one of Sterling's finest character studies on my gallery. It Further, it is given sensitive treatment by the joint artistry of star E.G. Marshall and director Jeanneau Swark. The driver delivering the body from the rest home is Noam Pitlick, a popular actor from the period whose TV credits go back to 1961. Director Billy Wilder loved his spiky character turns enough to cast him prominently in both The Fortune Cookie and The Front Page, but he is best known for his continuing roles on Sanford and Son as whiter-than-white police officer Swanny Swanhauser, and on The Bob Newhart Show as Bob Hartley's perpetually hostile patient, Mr. Gianelli. He was also a talented director, winning both an Emmy Award and a Director's Guild of America Award, and his best work behind the camera may be found on the 102 episodes he helmed of the long-running comedy series. Barney Miller. Excuse me. What about this scene, as the funeral director quizzes the driver, is quintessentially Serling in its choice of language and meter, and Pitlick's delivery and cadence gets very close to Serling's own manner of speech. The blunt exasperation with which he deals with Soames' questions about the care given to poor old Simon Cotner, is a frosty reminder of the neglect the aged often receive in our society as their lives wind down. A hundred bucks for formaldehyde in the ground. A hundred bucks. Rod Serling based his script on a short story by Miriam Allen DeFord, who had a rather fascinating life. She was born in Philadelphia in 1888, and aside from her true calling as a mystery, crime, and science fiction writer. She was also a suffragette and feminist, an ardent anti-fascist, a newspaper reporter and essayist, a publications editor, a paranormal investigator, a teacher, and an insurance adjuster. She died in San Francisco in 1975, a few years after this segment was shot. In 2008, the Library of America selected DeFord's story of the Leopold and Loeb murder trial for inclusion in its two-century retrospective of American true crime. a couple dozen weepers... Yeah, a fife and drum corps, that's your
1: business. But uh, don't do it on our account. We're a man.
0: God. Marshall's performance as Jared Soames walks a precarious tightrope between pathos and black comedy. Both Marshall and director General Swark shared the same understanding of the character, steering the interpretation toward the tragic. General recalls,
1: Marshall was tremendous in that show, by the way. But he did it with such sincerity, I mean. Maybe it's because of my European background, but I always went towards the tragedy. I never saw that character like a freak, for instance. And it's funny because when E.G. Marshall and I met, we had the same feeling. That uh, I said, I don't want this guy to come off like a weird freak, because there was a kind of a logic in his sickness, uh, you know. And also, I thought it was so sad that that kind of loneliness.
0: E.G. Marshall was, by this time, widely respected for his impressive body of work on the Broadway stage, in films, and television. He made his mark in the theater, performing in the original New York productions of The Skin of Our Teeth, The Iceman Cometh, The Crucible, and Waiting for Godot, and found himself taking lessons alongside Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, Julie Harris, and Kim Stanley in the newly formed Actors Studio. When Hollywood inevitably beckoned, Marshall scored again in courtroom and legal dramas such as The Cain Mutiny, Compulsion, Town Without Pity, and particularly Sidney Lamette's tense, claustrophobic Twelve Angry Men. Cast as the unflappable fourth juror, Marshall provided the prime opposition to Henry Fonda's dissenting opinion in an all-but-open-and-shut murder case. Marshall always brought a sense of intelligent authority to his parts, and that quality won him his signature role, that of Lawrence Preston in the CBS courtroom drama The Defenders. Marshall and co-star Robert Reed portrayed father and son attorneys who took on controversial cases that challenged the television norms of the era, earning Marshall two Emmy Awards for outstanding continued lead performance by an actor in a series during its four-season run. Another role of quiet intensity followed, neurosurgeon David Craig on the new Doctor's segment of NBC's The Bold Ones. Although often typecast in straight-list conventional roles, Marshall became notorious for his ribald sense of humor and his habit of pranking co-stars. While filming The Bold Ones, he was reported to ad-lib profane jokes and non-sequiturs while his lips were hidden behind his surgical mask. Marshall continued to act in scores of motion pictures made for TV movies and miniseries over the years, and even earned the affection of radio fans for his hosting duties on the popular nightly drama, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater a throwback to shows like Lights Out and Suspense. Marshall introduced bizarre, often macabre, tales that wouldn't have been out of place on Night Gallery. Have you seen anybody, a car or anything? The State Trooper is played by James Sicking, Best known for playing Gung Ho SWAT Commander Lieutenant Howard Hunter on the long-running police dramedy Hill Street Blues, whose chaotic, comic, and indelicate intrusions into standard police business nobody really wants but get anyway, his dialogue readings were always a scream. Seeking returns from Night Gallery's first season, in which he played one of the persistent reporters prilling Joseph Campanella's Mission Control team leader in The Nature of the Enemy. Rod Sterling's adaptations of other writers' prose were rarely completely faithful to the source, creating from his translation of the printed page to the screen something very much his own. A Death in the Family is no exception. DeFord's original story delivers the narrative completely within the mind of Jared Soames, an approach that is a very intimate experience in literature, but deadly in drama. In the short story... Soames begins his macabre Norman Rockwell by way of Charles Adams' family when the local druggist hires him to arrange the funeral of his wife, Gussie, a woman Soames has secretly loved from afar for many years. He strikes on a plan to ease his loneliness by preparing Gussie for her final rest, but swapping the body in the coffin with a weighted dummy and taking Gussie to the sitting room in his cellar, where he engages nightly in one-sided chats with her at day's end, telling her the events of his day before he retires to bed. From this point, he begins to add other members of his so-called family to fend off his loneliness and increase the illusion that he has someone to love and care for. Again, this is very effective on the page, but uncinematic in extremis. To allow for a more dramatic externalization of some's feelings, Serling invented the character of Duran, a hunted criminal fleeing from a botched filling station robbery. The presence of the wounded escapee draws compassion from the gentle undertaker when he discovers that he, too, was orphaned and abandoned. This structure obscures until the very end of the play the big reveal, outlining what Soames has been doing, while DeFord lets the reader in on this from the very first page. It works dramatically, and Serling's empathy for both of these characters is mirrored in every line. I'd like to give a shout-out to the cinematographer here, Lionel Curly-Linden, whose career began as a camera operator in the silence and ended on this season of Night Gallery, when cancer finally took him. He worked on golden age classics like Going My Way, The Blue Dahlia, Alias Nick Beale, and a slew of Bob Hope movies at Paramount, where it appeared he was Bob's favorite cameraman. In the 50s and 60s, he worked heavily in television, where he earned a reputation for being the fastest cinematographer on the lot, arranging lighting and camera setups within minutes. He worked steadily on shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Johnny Staccato, Thriller, The Virginian, and The Munsters, giving them all feature-quality lighting at a breakneck pace. Although he began to prefer television to avoid the rigors of location work on feature films, he still kept his hand in on the big screen, earning accolades for I Want to Live, the Manchurian Candidate, Grand Prix, and Around the World in 80 Days, for which he won an Oscar. His associate, Jerry Finnerman who also worked on Night gallery after Curly died, called Lyndon a full lighter, ensuring most of the frame was lit and typically eschewing shadows. But as you can see here, this was dependent on the project at hand and these deep shadows reflect the psychological depths of the characters in conflict. The beautifully composed frames are the work of director Janos Fark, who loved working with Curly and they brought out the very best in each other on this show, collaborating on Class of 99, the Phantom Farmhouse, Midnight Never Ends, Big Surprise, and Lagoda's Heads, among others.
2: So
0: Does Arnaz Jr., only 18 years old, when cast to play The Fugitive, really appreciated snagging such a meaty role. Quote, Rod had that inner-life take on the world. He told stories and metaphors and parables, with science fiction and fable, but in a way that's much more realistic than the reality-based things writers attempt today. They don't have the psychological base that he had, or the inner spiritual side, which he tried to allude to. There is more to life than meets the eye. Unquote. He recalls the production with great enthusiasm. Quote, it was really a great experience. Jeannot Swark was a new hot director at the time, and he was great. One of the best experiences I ever had with a director. I was 18 years old at the time, and I was cast just before we started shooting. There wasn't a whole lot of time to learn the lines, so it was really off the cuff. We shot the whole thing in just two days, and it was a lot of work, about 30 setups a day. But the crew was really good, and Jeanneau was completely organized and prepared. He knew exactly what he wanted. E.G. Marshall and I had a lot of fun doing this episode. I got to play a psychotic, and E.G. was great as the crazy mortician. I was wet and dirty for the whole shoot. My hair was really long, and I had to wear special makeup. I have a scar on my face, and they decided to intensify the scar with the makeup. The scene in the living room, where I'm talking about my childhood without a father, and then E.G. is talking about his strange life. It was a very odd little piece, kind of disturbing. But there was a comedy element to this particular night gallery, and we were laughing a lot in between shots, unquote. Of
3: Why? Why the break?
1: You're very young.
3: 22, that's not so young. Very young. To be bleeding to death in a funeral home.
0: Pete's dying in the rain. Production on the segment wrapped at 6.15 p.m. on June 25th, 1971. But Arnez had a 7 o'clock gig in front of the cameras at another studio, and the odds were not good that he would make it in time. Quote, Merv Griffin had asked me to host his talk show, and it happened to coincide with the last day of the Night Gallery shoot. It was a simultaneous glimpse of the opposites, the irony of show business all in one day. I had to ask the producers if we could finish early. That was another reason it took only two days to shoot. On the second day, we were trying to get it all done so I could get out of there by 615 I was in full costume, wet, dirty, dingy, with glycerin all over me. I finished the last shot, the death scene at the table, put something over my dirty clothes, took my suit with me, and rushed out of the studio. You rest. I then had to drive on the freeway from Universal Studios in the San Fernando Valley to where they film The Merv Griffin Show at CBS in Studio City. I knew I would be late if I didn't make it in time. The whole thing was like a Rod Sterling script. I really felt like Rod was with me in the car. Desi Arnaz Jr. alone on the freeway. He doesn't know whether he'll make it in time to host the Merv Griffin show.
3: Until tonight, the only hand I ever got was the back of it.
0: I got to the show, took a shower, put on my suit, went on stage, and said, "Hi, good evening, welcome to the show." And then my first guest, appropriately enough, was Peter Herkos, the psychic. It was such an odd coincidence. I went straight from the night gallery to asking questions like, so, Peter, how come you're able to do this? And Peter said, well, when I was a little boy, I fell on my head, and ever since then, I've been able to read minds. It was kind of nutty. I couldn't help but be amused for the rest of the show.
1: You rest. No one will disturb you.
0: The noteworthy and decidedly peculiar music score for this segment was the inspiration of John Lewis, whose use of bluesy solo violin and sneaky pizzicato bass reflects his jazz background. Moreover, just beneath the score's jazzy surface, one can detect its gospel roots, with spiritual derived melodies in a decidedly macabre, chortling, minstrel show dress, a sly commentary on the play's themes, mocking some's bizarre view of the afterlife. The effect is as oddly touching as it is comical, reminiscent of an earlier ballet Lewis composed based on the first chapters of the Book of Genesis, Original Sin. Best known for his work as a pianist and composer for the venerable modern jazz quartet, Lewis was no stranger to film scoring, and Night Gallery producer Jack Laird loved his work. Quote, I've known John for years, not only through the quartet's work, but particularly for some of his more extended writings, such as the album European Windows. I felt he could write something big along those lines, or along the lines of Orchestra USA, the large ensemble with which he was associated in New York in the early 1960s. Lewis did a couple of episodes for us not long ago, and enjoyed it so much that he has been telling people that he wants to get into television writing more extensively. Unquote. But the end result was less than rosy, per gallery composer Gil Malay, who said this. He asked me, who can I get to replace you? I said, geez, I
4: I don't know, Jack. I mean, I really don't know anybody that can write jazz and write electronic music and write classical music. I just don't. And so he said, well, how about John Lewis? He said he did an album in Europe called um, European Windows which I, I hadn't heard the album, but he said, he, you know, he, he apparently wrote all the stuff for Strings. He said, what about him? I said, well, I said, if, if John can write for Strings, and I said, I, I don't know if he conducts or what, I said, but it sounds like an ideal choice. So he says, great. He says, that's terrific. So they sent for John Lewis. They brought him out. John Lewis did two shows, and they fired him. They sent him back to New York. I said, why did you send John back to New York? He, says, he said, when we were laughing, he was dying, and when we were dying, he was laughing. One show I remember seeing it, it was in a classroom about a, about a, a teacher, a professor or something in college. I didn't understand the score that John wrote at all. I, I just couldn't equate it with the show. You know, I mean, in those days, I was really geared into everything that David Shire or Day, or, or Billy Goldenberg or, you know, any of the guys were around. I mean, you know, we all listened to each other and I always caught shows just to see what was happening. And I, I just, uh, the, the one with John really eluded me. i That is what happened. I mean, Jack was really unhappy with him.
3: The whole
1: world full of lonely pallbearers. Down here, in this room.
0: The shooting of the finale had its difficulties, in that the actors playing corpses had to keep absolutely still, trying not to move an eyelash in order to maintain the illusion. Said Geno about the scene.
1: You know how I got the corpses to look like corpses? Those were not photographs, you know. I shot the close-ups of the courses in slow motion because I didn't want to use photographs because you can always tell if it's a photograph. The actors, of course, stopped breathing and moving, but the fact that I shot it in slow motion gave me a much longer piece. Please,
3: that's not possible. They probably come for you. Now go back into the living room with the family. This isn't my family, they're stiffs. No. Get out of the way, mister! I mean it! Get out of the way! Don't you understand? I'm trying to help you. Please. You belong here. Get out of the way, mister!
0: Ultimately, Soames' final monologue, as written by Serling, did not survive the final editing stage complete. To tighten the pace to the finish when the troopers burst into the funeral home, a decision was made to cut the footage of Soames introducing each member of his quote-unquote family. This material has been restored for the syndication print. One of the few times the syndication fiasco resulted in something positive. It offers the viewer some idea of the -the behind-the-scenes creative process on Night Gallery. What Sterling lost in the trimming of those lines is ultimately regained in the crisp pacing of the segment as originally broadcast. Both versions are valid. It is for the viewer to decide which is more effective.
1: just having a little homecoming celebration for my father, my son, and for myself,
3: the father, the father of the family.
0: The Merciful was the third of the comic blackouts that began to change the tone of the series and, to some minds, negatively affect its consistency and quality. This one is better than most of them, benefiting from the comic talents of a real-life husband and wife, King Donovan, best known for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and Imogene Coca, one of the comic stars of your show of shows. Although the show business pair frequently performed on stage, Night Gallery marked their television debut as a married couple. Continuing producer Jack Laird's penchant for thematic casting, Coca and Donovan were signed in June 1971 to play the elderly Mr. and Mrs. at the same time that Coca's legendary Your Show of Shows co-star, Carl Reiner, was approached for another of Laird's humorous horror send-ups, Professor Peabody's Last Lecture, which would appear later in the season. And a little while,
1: will be all- It's really much better.
0: The actress received Night Gallery's guest star top of show, $2,500, which is a far cry from Coca's NBC contract two decades earlier. In 1954, after Your Show of Shows' headliners said Caesar abruptly ended his series, the stunned comedian famously walked away from her multi-year, $100,000 guaranteed contract. Quote, It was such a stupid thing to do. I thought it had something to do with integrity. I prefer to think it was for the best. After all, it did keep me busy. But just think what I could have done with that money. in a little
2: while, a very little while, the air will be gone.
0: Often on Night Gallery, the stories behind the making of the vignettes were more humorous than the actual vignette. One came from actress Louise Sorrell, who starred in a pair of classic gallery segments, The Dead Man and Pickman's Model. She believes Jack Laird adapted this piece from mystery writer Charles Sweeney's twist on Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado as a way of exercising some domestic demons. I just loved Jack Laird. I thought he was...
1: I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he's alive. He had a very strange mind. I remember that he wrote one with Imogene Coca, which was based on his own life. Hold on one second, sorry. I may be making this up, but I don't think... I, it was based on his wife who kept redecorating his house. He, he was, she was driving him nuts, Jack Laird.
4: So he, he wrote this piece. That was really his fantasy of walling his wife. in.
3: <laughs> he hysterical. He wrote out all his stuff.
0: In truth, the merciful works better than most of the other short sketches Laird devised, which is a reason for moderate thanks. Dear... In its entirety, this episode of Night Gallery cracked the weekly Nielsen Top 20 list of the highest-rated television broadcasts for the first time, coming in at number 18 with a 20.8 rating, aided by the popularity of its lead-in, Columbo, and retaining most of its audience, a clear sign of gallery strength. Mannix, its competition on CBS, came in at number 14.
4: unusual
5: graduation exercise now. I'm Jim Benson, co-author with Scott Skelton of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, an after-hours tour. This all-too-brief introduction to Class of 99 features one of Night Gallery artist Tom Wright's finest works. Wright said that as he was thinking about this painting, images of the story took over. Strict classrooms, order, nondescript faces, People are numbers, no identities, symbols. The date in the title, 99, was also an inspiration, and the eye is the camera that reveals all. One admirer of Tom Wright's artistry was none other than Night Gallery's creator and curator, Rod Serling.
4: A uh, brilliant, young, versatile artist who sculpts and paints, and paints in water and paints in, in oils and does beautifully. He li- No, they never do. They don't accept outside material, literary literary material, they don't accept outside painting. And my contract calls for uh, maybe one out of six scripts and the sweeping of the studio on Friday evening.
5: Class of 99 graphically exemplified to both Jack Laird and Rod Serling what Jeannot work could do for Night Gallery. Inspired by Serling's powerhouse script, Zwark decided to approach this particular television assignment in a much more complex fashion, as Jeannot work describes in the following clip. First,
1: I really shot it not like a TV show, but like a little movie. They were like the opening shot is almost like a, a 180 degree uh, uh, camera move, which is really much more cinematic than television. And also, I think he was impressed with uh, the moment, the mood, and also when you realize that they're all robots, because that was really the coup de of the whole story.
5: Vincent Price is magnetic as the steely, imperious professor, probing for weaknesses in his graduating class of robot surrogates. Lucy Chase Williams, author of The Complete Films of Vincent Price, wrote, His very name was synonymous with the delightfully terrifying chills Night Gallery invoked. At the time he was cast for Night Gallery, Vincent Price's career spanned nearly four decades in almost every entertainment medium. Price starred in such film classics as Laura, House of Wax, The Ten Commandments, which had elevated the actor to the level of the big-name, high-wattage talent that Jack Laird and company sought to cast in Night Gallery. Gallery cast Vincent Price twice in this episode and the third season, horror-occult classic, The Return of the Sorcerer. When the opportunity came to guest star on the second season of Night Gallery, Vincent Price happily accepted. He said at the time, quote, I read the story and felt it was Serling at his best. I'm the world's biggest fan of Rod Serling, end of quote. Vincent Price once confided to a reporter that he had had offers to do chiller-type series on TV, but spurned them in the past. Quote, the only series in that genre that I thought was good was Night Gallery. It was the best of all. Director Jeannot's work certainly considered Vincent Price to be among the best of all, as he conveys in the following clip. Oh, he was,
1: well, he and I, you know, since I'm French, and he wrote this wonderful cookbook, which is based on the food of the best restaurants in the world. Oh, I tell you, it's wonderful. It's simply wonderful. So we spoke about food a lot, And we spoke about film noir a lot, about movies of the 40s. You know, everybody forgets he was in Laura. So we spoke a lot about films of the 40s and about great restaurants.
5: On the set of Class of 99, the diverse group of young actors experienced a bit of awe and a sense of admiration for the legendary actor, which was certainly the case with actor Hilly Hicks, who played Mr. Barnes, as we'll hear in this clip.
2: amazing. I mean, he was like flawless. And to have invested that much time to prepare, you know, for an appearance on a TV show, that was inspiring to me. And he was one of the stars that I worked with that did not let me down. I mean, I I worked with a lot of stars, but when I was around him, what I did notice is that he was very respectful of his craft And respected it enough to actually learn his line. He was just—he offered no impediment to the production at all. He—he didn't have an ego. Didn't have a lot of people just, you know, trying to stroke his ego and all that. And he didn't—you know—seem demanding. He just seemed like prepared and, and ready to go. And yeah, I found that very inspiring
1: and with V as the velocity.
5: Jeannot's works, artistry, and talent were on full display in this episode, and the director's complicated sequence of tracking shots, cuts, and changing perspectives did not go unnoticed by Rod Serling, as the show's creator describes in the following clip.
4: But I'll give you an example. We did a show called Class of 99, uh, directed by Jeannot Schwartz, and all in one classroom, and at no single moment, did you ever feel confined or that you were in the same place? Uh, but as you know, it's This kid that I mentioned, he was brilliant. You know, a very a, a skilled director.
1: ...relationship, a hypothetical case. Look at Mr. Barnes to your right. The hypothesis
5: follows... Cast as the stoic Mr. Barnes, your... Hilly Hicks was just beginning the growth curve of his burgeoning acting career. Achieving his greatest notice in TV series such as Hill Street Blues, Roots, and a starring role in the short-lived MASH spinoff Rollout, Hicks resonated with Serling's powerful allegory on a very deep and personal level, as we'll hear in this clip.
2: Even I experienced the Jim Crow era in the South. Even though I was born born and raised in Los Angeles, and my parents were from uh, Louisiana. And I, uh, you know, as a child... You know, we traveled back through the South quite a lot. That was during, the, that was in the 50s, when Jim Crow laws were still in effect. I experienced a lot of segregated lunch counters, because we couldn't sit there. You know, we, we would have to sit in the kitchen or sit in some remote part of the restaurant. So I experienced that a lot child direct segregation. Uh, you know, whites and coloreds only, water fountains was something I saw with my own eyes, and and felt the fear of being black in the in the South. So when it came to you know, doing scenes like that, I mean that was not far away for me. So I did bring you know a lot to it, but it was not like uh, a, a long reach. You know, uh, so I didn't have to do a whole lot of research to to try to understand what those emotions might be be like to have somebody you know telling you that you're less than they are because of your race.
5: Despite their on screen hostility, actor Frank Hotchkiss and hilly Hicks immediately hit it off
2: yeah it wasn't very wasn't all that hard, and I remember him being very apologetic about that you know <laughs> and i think he he felt uh, that he hit me harder than he actually had but i was very mo- that it was very motivating though that little bit of contact was very it helped me as an actor it <laughs> to fuel my my rage at him, and you know, uh, which, of course, as the character, I had to keep under control and be very controlled with. But he, he apologized way too much. <laughs> he was a very nice, very nice man and very, you know, very
5: kind and nice to work with. For Hilly Hicks, working on Night Gallery and co-starring in Serling's Class of 99 was quite an honor for the young thespian, as we'll hear in this clip.
2: Night Gallery it was different in a lot of ways for me. I still try to do my job and not be too distracted by the historical nature of all of that of being on, on the set with Rod Serling who also came, he was, he was there you know, several times yeah I grew up watching Twilight Zone and listening to Rod Serling's voice as he introduced and watched him on camera and you know he looked exactly like he did on TV and uh, yeah, you know, he had that great voice, but again, I didn't spend a lot of time. You know, try, I did not avail myself of that opportunity to try to get to know Rod Serling, even though he too was on the set. I was just hoping that Rod Serling would like me and that that I would do justice to his production. Unfortunately, I never, never got that feedback. You know, uh, but I didn't feel like I needed to. I, I felt like if I if I did my very best on the set, he certainly would would appreciate it when he saw it in the screening room. I'm I'm confident that, you know, that he did appreciate it.
5: After he left acting in the mid-1980s, Hilly Hicks embraced a different life role, becoming the Reverend Hilly Hicks. But even after more than half a century, appearing in Class of 99 and representing Rod Serling's work, still remains a profound moment in the former actor's life.
4: White trash. Ignorant. No graces. Envious. Money conscious. Social climber.
1: Proceed.
5: Among the professor's algorithmic androids representing the class of 99 was a very young Randolph Mantooth. One year shy of beginning his seven-year run as firefighter John Gage on the immensely popular 1970s NBC paramedic TV drama Emergency, Mantooth was cast as Mr. Elkins, whose subversion is the catalyst that reveals Serling's bleak vision of a future driven by the darker side of human nature. Demonstrating the importance of this production for all involved, Rod Serling made a special effort to attend the filming of Class of 99 and was present for virtually the entire day and a half shoot. During his rare onset visit, Mantooth observed that despite his valiant attempt, Night Gallery's writer-creator failed to remain inconspicuous. Mantooth recalls Serling standing in the corner of the set, and the young actor was struck by the fact that the famous scribe was constantly smoking, constantly had a cigarette in his mouth. At the time, Mantooth himself was a smoker, but he had never seen anyone smoke like that. For the future fictional firefighter, watching Serling smoking a cigarette was comparable to witnessing a three-alarm fire on emergency. Eventually... Serling approached Randolph-Mantooth and the two enjoyed a friendly exchange. Mantooth found Serling to be extremely warm and down-to-earth but at the same time rather shy, which surprised the young actor. Adding to the segment's effectiveness is its remarkable set a white-on-white classroom auditorium designed by Joseph Alves and the fluorescent paranoia of Lionel Linden's lighting. Combined, they vividly create an atmosphere of cold, antiseptic unease. Director Jeannot's work recalls working with the legendary cinematographer Lionel Linden, as you'll hear in the following clip.
1: Curly Linden, he was called Lionel Linden, he was an Academy Award cinematographer, and I think I had him when I did Class of 99 in my first night galleries. He was incredible. And he was a heavy drinker, and a, he had a very crusty personality, and he hated incompetence. If he worked with a director who didn't know what he was doing, he'd let him dig his hole and never would help. And uh, we hit it off immediately, and we had a very special relationship. As he died He had cancer and i used to go and see him at the hospital and you know if you ever saw the Manchurian candidate in black and white he was the dp on that that's one of the most beautiful black and white films i've ever seen you are not sure that he is the enemy he's not the enemy
3: he's not the enemy I can't
1: deliberately kill someone without knowing why I'm killing or who I'm killing. I can't do that. He's infecting the others. Deactivate all of them. I can't
0: deliberately take
5: her. Clean. Trying to disguise the true identities of the students until the finish, Zwerk lectured his acting class in the correct behavior of robots, and devised an ingenious system for the climactic scene, as the director describes in the following clip.
1: That was done live. You know, what what I did is I think I recorded numbers, and then we played back the track of numbers, and I told various people, uh, you come, you know, you, you freeze between 10 and 12, you do it between 14 and 17, and describe the movement, and then we did it live. Mr. Johnson, your attention, please.
5: Brandon DeWildo turns in a very fine performance as the quick to recover Johnson. Best known for his previous work in the classic feature film, Shane, The Member of the Wedding, and HUD, DeWilda's distinguished career ended abruptly and tragically the next year. While performing Butterflies Are Free in Colorado, A traffic accident ended his life at only the age of 30.
3: Elgin's refused to respond to his responsibility. He failed to kill the enemy. Very good, go on. So, what evolved is yet a second enemy. In the nature of? A traitor, subversive and unreliable.
5: Janot's work was equally taken with Serling's work and vastly appreciated the opportunity to work on a show like Night Gallery, which represented a genre that he loved. Well, I had
1: become aware of Rod Serling before. First, I was a sci-fi fanatic, and then I'd seen a lot of Twilight Zones, so I was very much aware of his work. And then uh, I just started directing, and I did one night gallery and uh, I had a knack for it and I loved it it was a very exceptional experience there's been nothing like it since then the network didn't quite understand the series and wasn't crazy about it and the studio didn't quite understand the, the series and wasn't crazy about it either so we had a lot of freedom and it was an anthology and the uh, one night gallery led to another and I think it was A class of 99, but Rod saw one of the shows I did, and then he said, oh, I want this guy to do my scripts. And then I ended up doing a lot of his scripts, and it was wonderful.
3: We need not be reminded of recent history and why we are here. It's sufficient to recollect that major wars, pestilence, and pollution have reversed the overpopulation trend and left the world depleted and diminished. It is for this reason that we have been created. Populate society. We have been created by man in his image. All that we know, our attitudes, our values, are part of the integral data that's been fed into us. And we shall use them as a point of beginning. We must be just, but ruthless in terms of survival. We must recognize that many of the ancient virtues.
5: In the beginning of this story, we are led to wonder what kind of university is this? What kind of society is this? In the end, as in his stunning finale for the classic film Planet of the Apes, Rod Serling reveals that it is our own. In Serling's Class of 99, we have passed our dread legacy on to the next eager generation of rote-spinning automatons. This gallery opening is notable for the fact that Satisfaction Guaranteed is the only segment to reuse a painting from another episode. For Night Gallery fans and viewers with good memories, it is quite evident that this particular still life represents Tom Wright's painting for Night Gallery's other dark comedy, Marmalade Wine. Satisfaction Guaranteed is perhaps the most satisfying vignette to come out of the eccentric mind of writer-producer Jack Laird. Satisfaction Guaranteed marks the second appearance of Kathleen Cordell in The Night Gallery. Here, she plays a role almost identical to that of Miss Beamish in the first season episode, The Housekeeper. Once again, Ms. Cordell portrays the head of an employment agency completely befuddled by the idiosyncratic demands of her client. Born in Brooklyn, New York in 1915, Ms. Cordell and family eventually moved to India, England, and then France. Her exposure to those rather diverse cultures at such a young age helped craft Kathleen Cordell's unusual haughty tones and somewhat imperious manner, which she skillfully incorporated into her vast catalog of performances. Ms. Cordell began her film career in 1938 and starred in the classic 1940 British psychological drama Gaslight, the title of which has now become a common and frequent pop culture term. Genre fans will also remember Kathleen Cordell for her appearance in the 1985 cult zombie horror film The Return of the Living Dead. Although Victor Buono's contributions to Night Gallery consisted of two comedic vignettes, a midnight visit to the neighborhood blood bank and satisfaction guaranteed, his extraordinary talent still made a substantial impact on the series. Because his mature looks and hefty size belied his youth, casting directors typically hired him for much older character roles, such as the beatnik poet Bongo Benny on 77 Sunset Strip. Suddenly, Buono was in line for practically every TV crime series needing an eccentric character or bizarre villain. Victor Buono's talent was recognized by director Robert Aldrich, who cast him as Edwin Flagg in the horror classic Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Playing opposite Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, Buono succeeded in matching and occasionally surpassing Davis's scenery-chewing performance, leading to an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. The role of Edwin Flagg led Buono to be cast in a series of deranged characters in such films as Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte as Betty Davis's Sinister Father, the evil Count Carlos Manzeppi on The Wild Wild West, and the legendary supervillain King Tut on the 1960s ABC TV series Batman. In the 1970s, Buono racked up a remarkable number of screen credits including Get Smart, The Mod Squad, Mannix, Hawaii Five-0, The Odd Couple, The Hardy Boys, Fantasy Island, Taxi, and many, many more. Although he obviously relished his artistic workload, Buono's larger-than-life appetites got the best of him. Victor Buono died of a massive heart attack on January 1st, 1982. He was only 43 years old. I have used about Although Satisfaction Guaranteed was one of the most successful of producer Jack Laird's beloved vignettes, few shared Laird's fondness for these supposedly humorous little ditties, not the least of which was Night Gallery's creator, Rod Serling, and the director of Satisfaction Guaranteed, Jeannot's work.
1: I was never crazy about them, uh, but that's my choice. I can't remember if it was When uh, it came from the network, or Jack, because, you know, Jack had a quirky side. And I think it was Jack, because I remember, as a matter of fact, that he acted in one of the vignettes. And I still have a photograph of Jack Laird in his costumes with his hunchback. (laughs) (laughs) And he was quite good, actually.
5: Satisfaction guarantees rather racy. Double entendre punchline did cause some concern,
1: however. God, I you have no—that's Jack Laird for you. You know, when I read that script, I told him, I said, "You'll never get away with that last line. You'll never get away with it." Well, he stuck to it, and his defense was very simple. Whenever someone would say something, he'd say, "Well, you guys have really dirty minds. I never thought about that." That would be the end, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, we got away with it.
0: Thanks for listening to our commentary. At the time of this taping, the second edition of our book, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, An After Hours Tour, is set for release sometime in spring of 2022. Massively expanded and researched, fully illustrated with color and black and white photos, and more than twice its original length, it's for all practical purposes an entirely new book. For fans of the series of Rod Serling and of television history, we feel it's a must-read. We hope you take a look at it.